0: Enthusiastic member of the Alaron Family Groups, my name is Richard. Hi, Richard. i got to tell you, I'm really glad to see a bunch of people around here this weekend, but I've never been quite so glad to see anybody as when Judith walked in. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've been paying attention this weekend, you've noticed that uh, I have a, a tendency to try to invite speakers who bring a lot of energy up here. Uh, I met Judith speaking at the Rosetown Roundup where she and her husband were were both speaking for AA and I gotta tell you she she impressed me uh, because she's like she's like this little spark plug it's like a lot of energy in this small battery with a heck of a story and that's about all that I've, all that I've got to say I, I, with that I'd like to call Judith Ara speaker of course. Many of the students and I'm an alcoholic. I yes. Oh my God, you guys are way too enthusiastic. Um, first of all, before I start, I'd like to have a moment of silence so that at least I can get my stuff together before I, I start my, my talking. So you'll join me in a moment of silence, <laughs> followed by the <Mr>. surrender. <laughs> God, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. <clears throat> Excuse me, thank you. And I have a tendency at first, before I start speaking, my voice kind of comes and goes. And, and uh, But anyways, I'll uh, attempt to uh, make sure that doesn't happen a lot. Of course, it's out of my hands, isn't it? Oh, it's up to God. And uh, anyways, uh, I wanted to say, in addition to being uh, an alcoholic, I'm a human-holic. And uh, that that came across really loud and clear to me today, um, because it seems like whatever could happen—not wrong, but just sort of to kind of set me off and, and scatter me a bit—happened, you know. And and first thing, my apologies to Richard because. Um, should have, called you when we were en route, and I thought, well, he knows we're going to be at around 1.30 or so, and, and I've got such an ego, it's like, it's not going to make any difference to him if I don't show up till like 10 to 3, eh? That's my alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, that is, okay? And I do still have a tendency to do that after having a few full moons in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and another 12-step program, I still have that tendency to wait till the last dog is hung before, I actually do anything, and I don't know where that comes from. It's not as bad as it used to be. It used to be really bad. At least I had the foresight to print off the uh, flyer for the the, uh, the the festival, as well as uh, go into the map and see exactly where the uh, the hotel is, which is good. Uh, except I forgot my I thought I forgot my map of Saskatoon in my husband's car. And I was blaming him silently all the way to Saskatoon about that, and then I realized I had a little pocket version of the map. Anyways, bottom line is we got here okay, and hopefully your headaches <laughs> go away now. Um, you know, a big book says to share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. You uh, sort of got the what it's like now kind of a, sort of <laughs> the, a, a, little, a little bit of it. Um, but I guess for me to start off, uh, one of the things, and, and forgive me if I sort of jump around, I'll, I'll try and, and keep as coherent as possible. I did make some notes, actually, when I was at a meeting last night. Um, it's still really, really important for me, and it's crucial, and it's vital for me to attend meetings um, of, uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's where I you know, I get my, my directions on how to live life on my terms. Because before I came into uh, any 12 step program, I didn't have a clue. And that's why I used whatever it was I could to sort of, you know, sort of, uh, commandeer my way through life. So, but the first thing I wanted to say was, um, and when Richard phoned me and we started emailing back and forth about, you know, kind of what, you know, he, kind of the direction he wanted me to, to, to come in in that, um, I did start off my journey. Okay, uh, in ACA in Calgary, Adult Children Anonymous. So, if you know there's any doubters out there thinking that you know the word doesn't get out to other twelve-step programs via the Adult Children program, let me tell you, I'm here to say that that's just not true. Um, I started there, on the advice of a counselor. Uh, she suggested I go there because I was just having problems. Period. And I guess it was, so I, I, yeah, yes, ma'am, I'll go, I'll go. And I went to a meeting, I think that night, and I just about ran out the door screaming when I had to read the 12 steps because they mentioned God. (laughs) Okay, this is a religious cult. And then when they got to the anonymity part, I couldn't pronounce it, and I I remember a few meetings I went to after that at the ACA, I tried to position myself so that I wouldn't have to come to the part where it says anonymity because I didn't want to screw it up. That's just what kind of a people pleaser and how much perfectionist I was. I just didn't want to mess up anywhere. And that's basically what got me to ACA. And then from there, you know, it morphed into AA and then another 12-step program. But anyways, Uh I hope I can remember most of my talk from Rose Town, but I can't. And like I've heard other speakers before me say that I've heard, you know, um, I have no idea what's going to, you know, come out right now. You know, it's up to my higher power. So
1: blame him
0: if it. None of you get whatever, whatever you want. And I don't think you can get their money back. if <laughs> uh, first of all I uh, I was born uh, a number of years ago and the family I was born into I like to say was uh, well planted in food and well irrigated in alcohol uh, I came from a long line on both parents' sides of uh, alcoholics and other addictions gambling, uh, drugs, food you name it, they did it and uh, so I grew up feeling, feeling like I just didn't fit in, not even in my own family, you know? That, that, and, and, and there's probably a few people in here, maybe one or two, just feel like, to just think, you know, I was put in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? For years, I wanted to have somebody knock at the door and say, I'm here for my daughter, take you hand over. <laughs> <me? laughs> that didn't happen. And, you know, for years, I wanted my parents to divorce so I could go live with my dad because Absolutely hated my mother with a passion. She was the reason that my life was so bad. And today, when I look back on it, um, you know, and, and I know we've heard this before—they did the best they could with what they had, but that's the reality of it, you know. And and I can't change that. And today, my relationship, although my mother is Alzheimer's, is way way different than it was before I came into these rooms, and that's as a result of this program. Because believe me, if I were still out there doing my thing, I wouldn't care that she had Alzheimer's. I wouldn't even care if she was alive or dead. Um, I was the kind of vindictive person, daughter, that deliberately would ignore her birthday, but make sure my dad got a birthday call or a card or something. I would deliberately skip Mother's Day because I just I was going to make her pay, and, and that's just where it came from. I mean that's where I came from, and like I say, part of that was because I grew up in a home where I just felt I didn't belong. Um, I was the last of three children. I was an accident, apparently. Um, although they told me late later, excuse me later that um, my father finally got the daughter he always wanted. Um, true that is but anyways uh, so as youngest of three children my brothers were seven and eight years older than I was or am and so I didn't I didn't really have any kind of a, a relationship at least with my uh, older brother my younger brother and I he took care of me from the time I can remember um, and that and when he left to go into the uh, armed services um, it it it, it bothered me. I was actually kind of happy because he used to sibling rivalry or he used to do things like, you know, grab me by the arm and twist it up behind my back and so it's probably not a very pleasant, you know, memory in, in uh, retrospect but uh, he and I did have a really close relationship and when he was killed in a car accident at the uh, age of 24, um, it hit me harder than I thought it, it would have. Uh, I had already started at that point um, to drink and I had just discovered actually, probably about mm, eight months prior to that, alcohol. Uh, a year before that, I discovered um, what it feels like to feel no pain, and that was as a result of going into a hospital for surgery, for appendix. And as they were making me count backwards from 100, and I felt that <coughs> floaty feeling coming down, I remember it like it were yesterday. If I could only live my life like this all the time, it wouldn't be so bad. And that was just sort of one of the things that I remember, you know, before I started my journey into uh, alcoholism. Anyways, um, skipping sort of back a little bit, I uh, I grew up in an alcoholic home uh, with um, a lot of uh, alcoholism in uh, my family and even the town we lived in. Um, I like I say I always felt that I'm not part of anything. Uh, my friends, some of them who went to church on Sundays, I was it was like if we had railroad tracks going through our town, I would have been on the wrong side of the tracks because uh, I just did not fit in with them or or any of the quote unquote conventional, uh normal whatever uh, of society or what I thought should be should be normal. Um I went to high school, I started high school and, and things just went from bad to worse. My insecurities, you know, I'm, I'm an uh, egomaniac with an inferiority complex. An oversensitive egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I discovered that when I came into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and went into a big book study. Um, and so I went into high school and there, I, that's when I discovered alcohol. And later on I discovered drugs as well as some other things, but I'll focus on the alcohol today. Anyways, I discovered alcohol and I was one of these people, you know, my parents drank and and that and I, I'll be honest, I really didn't like the taste of it. But once I could get that first drink down and I literally sometimes had to choke it back, then I knew everything. The rest went down really good. (laughs) You know, and I had no problem, I could just, you know, keep on going. So I, I started drinking at the age of 16. And uh, I thought everybody drank like I did. Imagine my amazement when I came into program and I discovered that people, not everybody drank like I did. I did hang out with a lot of uh, kids my age and older who did drink like, like I did, but not all of them did. So I, uh, I came into, the, I came into um, uh, alcoholism at a very early age and, and I saw it all around me. And I drank uh, to escape. I drank to celebrate. I I drank for whatever reason there was. Any day that ended in the letter Y was a reason to drink. You know, I didn't have to wait for you know Sears Days or Bay Day or anything like that. You know, today was a good day. And at first, I was a, like a binge drinker. Okay, the only on the weekends. But then slowly, they started sort of slopping over into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And I remember. Uh, they had lowered the drinking age in Ontario at that time to 18, and I could not wait till my 18th birthday, because man, that I could drink without hiding it, and I was gone. So the day after I turned 18, I was on the bus headed for Toronto, the big city, the big life, and look out world, here I come. And one of the things that attracted me to uh, a big, you know, thriving city like that was the fact I really could be anonymous, even though I didn't know what it was at the time, I could drink and nobody was going to tell me on Monday morning what I had done Friday night because uh, obviously we're not probably going to run into these people again. So that that for me was great. I loved that. So I went to Toronto and I was uncontrollable. I really was. My drinking was just, it was just terrible. And I remember ending up in a couple of emergency wards with suicide attempts, even though I never, con- it was never a, conscious act of well yeah, it was a conscious act of of wanting to kill myself, but I never put alcohol and suicide attempts together. To me, alcohol just gave me the strength to do what I had to do to get to that part where I was gonna die. And imagine how angry I was, especially at God when, you know, I didn't die as a result of those actions. So I I had a number of suicide attempts. (laughs) I Remember one time, I phoned a suicide distress line, and and this lady, you know, I said, I just, you know, I took all these pills, and and I've been, I'm drunk and everything, and, and, you know, she told me, God bless her, you know, she talked to me for whatever, and then she said, you know, well, you know, call me in the mornings, let me know how you're doing, I guess she didn't think anything was going to happen, and uh, and she probably was drunk, I can't blame her, because I've done some 12-step monitoring in my home group in Calgary and I know what it's like to talk to a drunk person you know you just can't get through anyways I I went to Toronto in uh, 1972 and I I would I would go sometimes without maybe, I can remember one time I went a period of about a month without drinking, and I don't know if it was a conscious desire to quit or not touch it or whatever, usually it was the, the, the old, you know, God get me out of this and I'll never drink again kind of thing, so I would, you know, pray like mad, and, and I guess maybe I, maybe some made some sort of a bargain with God not to drink again. And I stayed dry for a month. And then I think on the 31st day or whatever, I decided I was going to celebrate because I hadn't had a, a drink for over a month, right? <laughs> and uh, so I, it, and I'd and be off the game, you know. And I never knew it was going to take me. And one thing that I didn't know until I got to treatment, that I was a blackout drinker. I did not know what a blackout drinker was till I came into uh, the program. And I, I sort of knew that I had a problem... Because I could never remember, I would be awake but I could not remember it after a certain point in the evening what had happened. And I can remember going into bars or, or whatever and I focus on, at that time of course they, they smoked in bars and stuff and they always had like the, the matches in the ashtray and the, on the tables and, and I remember thinking I'm going to focus on that matchbook so that I can remember tomorrow morning exactly where I was, and at what time, you know, sort of as a, a, a kind of a GPS system for me, and that, and I could never, the next day, it just, I had no recollection, I didn't even have a recollection of the match, let alone anything after that, and I didn't know, like I say, until I came to treatment, that I was a blackout drinker, but I was always afraid to ask people, do you, do you remember, or do you? You know, do you ever have these periods where you can't remember after a certain point in your drinking? Because I just knew that I wasn't going to get the answer I wanted. You know, um, I can even remember my mother. You know, me coming in one time we were uh, visiting an uncle of mine. He was having a pool party, eh, and the man was just, well, a raging alcoholic, a eh? high functioning but but an alcoholic. And that, and uh, he had this incredible pool party. Eh? I mean, it started on Sunday and lapsed over. Actually, started on Saturday afternoon and lapsed over into Sunday. And I can remember my mother saying to me first thing Sunday morning, because you know, I came home drunk the night before. And I remember saying to me Sunday, "Don't you get like today like you did last night? I don't want to see you coming through the doors like that again." And I had no idea what she was talking about because, as far as I was concerned, I was just fine, right? But I proceeded to get get drunk that day anyway. Says, you know. I guess I'm a spider just because I'm an alcoholic. You know, and again it wasn't until I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and my first big book study, you know, found out that what I have is an obsession of the mind, you know, that, that tells me you need to drink, you know, a drink will make you feel better, everything's gonna go away, you'll be tall good looking and bulletproof, go ahead and do it, and then I have a physical allergy because once I start I can't stop. One is too many, a hundred is not enough. Even th- and even though I had a hard time choking back the first one, I liked the effects of it. It was just I was just comfortably numb, and I could just I could just anesthetize myself. So that's kind of my alcohol thing, you know. And and uh, and I and like I say, my outsides or my yeah my insides look at your outsides, and I just I just couldn't measure up. So I drank, and then I discovered uh, pills along the way. Woo-hoo. Uh they made me f- or made me they helped me function so I thought through the day so I could, you know, sort of work and then at night I could go home and I could start drinking and, and you know, take off from there. But I didn't realize it was pretty lethal combination and that and, and about the time I was mixing the drugs and, and the alcohol, there was um, uh, a person in the United States that actually did the same thing that I was doing and she lapsed into a coma that lasted for I don't know how many years until finally she died. I think it was in sometime in the mid eighties. And that and I didn't I didn't realize that at the time, you know. And the more I'm in sobriety and I reflect back on some of the stuff that I did and some of the places I went and some of the places I ended up, I mean, God was obviously carrying me. God or a higher power or something at one time I hated that SOB because I just wanted to die. You know, I didn't want to be part of this world. So my drinking lasted until I moved to Calgary in uh, 1980, and that was a geographic cure. But I had to get out of Toronto for certain reasons. And so I, the opportunity presented itself to go to Alberta, so I went to Alberta. And, you know, I, and of course I had that alcoholic thinking, it'll be different here, right? I'll go someplace else. And I mean... I moved, you know, within the same city, you know, a year every year in a row, kind of thing, three, five years in a row. And because I always thought that new apartment or that new townhouse or whatever, it was going to be different. It's going to be a different neighborhood. But it wasn't. You know, wherever I go, I take me with me. How do I don't like the company. And today, I like it a lot better than I did oh, all those years ago, even as, as crazy as I can get today in sobriety. So I stayed... I guess more or less drunk through the 80s or most of the 80s until one day the alcohol stopped working. And, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't even, you know, get that sense of euphoria anymore. I just, I didn't get nothing. And that's when, that's when I hit my body because I couldn't get drunk and I didn't know how to live sober. So I I actually read an article in a newspaper. Uh, oh, yeah, I was looking to get into a relationship then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when all else fails, you know, get into a relationship, just see how really sick you are.
1: And um,
0: I, I remember I uh, read this article written by a lady who actually was kind of the forerunner to, you know, eHarmony.com or whatever, you know, and, and setting up matchmaker service. that's what it was. And she had written an article about adult children. And I had no sooner read that article when I had a phone call from one of my friends, one of my good friends, saying, I think you need to read this article. Um, a lot of the symptoms that they talk about, you have. You know, uh, the people pleasing, the, you know, lack of, you know, fearing everybody and everything, and just, just in general, just fearing the world and life itself. And so that's when I went to the company I worked for. They had an assistance program there, and I went through them, and they sent me to a counselor. And ironically, they sent me to one who specialized, really, in 12-step recovery. And I don't know why that was. I certainly didn't go to them saying, well, I got this drinking problem, or I had this drug problem, whatever. Whatever. But I ended up in, in this lady's uh, office, and uh, and I mean, I don't think two words were out of my mouth, and she said, you're an alcoholic. Because I told her what, what I would, when I drank, this is what happened. And then she said, you're an alcoholic. And I said, you don't understand. I haven't had a drink in, at that point, I think it was about two weeks. And she said, that doesn't matter. She said, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And if you start drinking today, you're going to pick up, Right where you left off. Well, I didn't want to go down that road because it wasn't very pretty. But I just didn't know how to live life. So, anyway, so she said, first of all, she suggested to me because, of course, I went in and it was all my parents' fault because they were raging alcoholics and I drank because of them and blah, 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 blah. And that, so she suggested I go to Adult Children Anonymous. And that, so I did. And I I went (coughs) faithfully every week to that meeting. And that, and I can remember being absolutely terrified in those rooms because. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to do anything after I said hello to these people. And I'd go to the meeting and I'd get there like five minutes before the meeting and I'd leave like two minutes afterwards and I was gone. And I can remember the first time I went to a meeting and, and they started crying in the meeting. Oh my God. I am definitely not in the right room here because for one thing, I didn't know how to cry unless I was drunk. And secondly, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to fix these people. You know, they needed my help, right? And I needed to, you know, I just wanted to heal and they'd be okay. And that didn't work. So I had a really difficult time um, in, in that particular fellowship until uh, one of the members one evening mentioned that they had come back from a treatment program. And they had and they'd gone down for a uh, family program, but they had to go to a couple of AA meetings. So I thought, mm, that sounds good to me. So anyways by that time, I had already put my name down to go to this treatment center on family program. That's like for the families, like children of, of alcoholics and, and that. So I put my name down for that. So and I filled out a survey that they'd sent to me about why I thought I needed to be there. And dumb me, you know, they said, have you ever had alcohol or drug problems? And I said, well, I used to do blah, blah, blah. And the next thing, you know, I'm getting a phone call saying they don't think I should come down on the family program. They think I should come down on the actual Alcoholics Anonymous recovery program. I was choked. I got on that hotline to my counselor and I said, well, I'm not going to this thing, blah, 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 blah until like I say, this lady came into this ACA meeting and told me that you know they're not that bad in AA. So anyway, so I, I went to a meeting. I thought, well see, this is another thing. I never like to start a job or a task until I know exactly how to do it. And as probably some of us know in here, it doesn't work that way, right? So I thought before I get to this treatment center, I better know a little bit about alcoholics anonymous. So I went to a few meetings. And ironically, well the first meeting I went to, I must have drove around the parking lot and I thought, this can't be the right place. I mean, there's Cadillacs here (laughs) there's nice cars and, you know, and and I walked into this room and it was huge. It it probably was way smaller than It was way smaller than this. But it seemed like it was huge eh? And, and I can remember them saying, is there anyone here for their first, second or third meeting and me putting out my hand and everybody turning around and looking at me? <laughs> but anyways, uh, they had a beginners meeting that night, and they sort of ushered me down the hall. A few of them, about six of them, and each of them told their story. And before probably the third person was finished telling their story, I knew I was in the right room. So I um, I, I, I went down to treatment after that. I, I kept going to AA meetings. There were some really close to me, and and I could identify with these people. But I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol because. I hadn't done all of the things that they'd done. I hadn't just walked in off the street drunk and falling down and, you know, drinking out of brown paper bags. I'd done that a number of years ago, but I hadn't done that. And they kept telling me, no, that hasn't happened to you yet. You're eligible to. So anyway, so I I hung around and I listened, and it was the only place that I could go for at least, you know, two, three hours out of a week where I wasn't going out of my mind, where that, that squirrel cage wasn't going round and round. So I ended up going to treatment, and that uh, at the end of uh, August of uh, 1988, and I, it was a two-week program. And I got to tell you, I had a choice. I could have gone to uh, one treatment center in Alberta, or I could have come to one here in Saskatchewan, and. I decided to go to the one in Alberta because I could drive to it, and if I had to leave at any time, I could jump in the car, and away I go, whereas the one in Saskatchewan was a lot further away, how was I going to escape if I had to, and it was 30 days. This other one was two weeks, I could do two weeks. So anyway, so I so I opted for the, the two-week program, if you will, and I went down, and, and uh, I, I went to meetings during the, the recovery process and, and that, and... Uh, came home, and, and I guess I thought when I came home I didn't have to go to meetings anymore, you know? That was my thing. If I could just get this quick fix and know what I need to know, then I wouldn't have to go to meetings, right? Right. Uh, little did I know I was going to become a meeting junkie. But anyhow, I uh, I came home from treatment and I went faithfully to meetings for the first probably three months. And then they started slacking it off around December and then around January. And then they just you know it was cold outside and I didn't want to go and you know and they probably say the same things blah blah blah. And finally I hit a bottom in March of 1989 that was just just absolute hell. I wasn't drinking. I don't really think I wanted to drink again, but I didn't want to live anymore, and I didn't know how to commit suicide without alcohol, so I was, you know, really in a, a double binder. So I uh, had run into a friend of mine, um, and about a week and a half prior to that, and he said they were starting a, a they just started a new meeting over uh, on the Cloud Trail in, in Calgary, and that, and I thought, I knew he was going to be at that meeting. So I got in my car that Sunday morning, I'll never forget it, jumped in the car, and I drove like mad over to that meeting and he wasn't there. He was chairing the breakfast meeting that we have or that they have in, in Calgary on Sunday mornings. He wasn't there, but I stayed because all of a sudden I felt this sense of calming. And just they welcomed me there. They didn't ask me, Well, you know, are you sure you qualify as an alcoholic here or you know they just they were just so welcoming and warming and that so I stayed. And that's when I did, you know, you've heard the 90 meetings in 90 days. That's when I did my 90 meetings in 90 days. And that group had a meeting every day of the week. Uh, they had meetings at noon and at 5.30. Uh, they had evening meetings a couple of nights a week. They had a ladies meeting on Monday nights. They, they had a living sober meeting on Saturday mornings. So I went to every meeting I could because I just needed, I was just that desperate. That's also when I got a sponsor. You know, up to that point, I hadn't hadn't even really read the big book. I didn't understand, like, how it works. Who who wrote this stuff, you know? And I had a big book, and I, I could identify with the stories in the back, but I didn't know squat about the rest of it. The first 164 pages meant nothing to me. And it wasn't until I got into a big book study in September 1989 that it really started to click with me, you know? And you know, and went through the steps. I got a sponsor. Went through the steps. Um, let me back up a little bit. I also got. You know, they say you know you don't change jobs when you first get in recovery. You don't change jobs. You know, you don't get a new one. You don't leave your old one. Uh, if you if you're in a marriage and you want to leave, you don't leave. You know, or if you're not in one, you don't go find one. Uh, and I did pretty much all of those uh, within the first three months of coming into AA. I changed jobs. Um, And then about six months after that, I got into a relationship. And I thought it was okay because I sort of never acknowledged that I was in that relationship until... Two days after my first birthday, so it's like, well, I'm in under the wire, right? It's sort of like a vaccination shot, you know. Well, it says, you know, two weeks before you leave the country, so you leave the day after the two weeks is up, right? So I uh, I got in the relationship with uh, someone who was 21 years older than me. I don't think I was consciously looking for a father figure, but that's what I got. Uh, but he was the first man that ever said he loved me. And, and that when his divorce was final, uh, <laughs> he would marry me, right? Okay, <clears throat> that was good enough for me. I was gone. And that, and I, I just didn't understand, I just didn't get it how I was sober, I was in this program, and things were still just not happening, right? And it took me, you know, a lot of, a lot of meetings, a lot of, to- I've had Three different sponsors uh, in my journey. Uh, the first sponsor, God bless her, she instilled in me the big book basics and and things that I'll never forget ever. And a wonderful woman, God, I just oh, I just get all choked up when I think of her. I know I owe so much to that woman. And the sponsors that came after her, you know, uh, also they were programs of attraction, you know. And I've heard people in programs saying, well, I'm sort of shopping around for a sponsor. Well, you know, I don't think it's like going into Safeway and getting the best bargain, you know. Um, I, I think it really is a program of attraction, you know. And I need to see, okay, not necessarily who's going to kick my butt, but, you know, God talks to me, okay. And he talked to me and he told me, you know, this this is the woman. And I approached her and she said, well, let's, you know, talk about what I expect out of a sponsee and what you expect out of a sponsor. I had no idea what, what to ask or anything. And I thought as soon as I told her I'd been, you know, committed, to try to commit suicide a couple of times, I'd, I'd be gone. And she told me about her suicide attempts, so I thought, okay, well, okay, we passed that hurdle. And, and so anyway, so she, uh, she took me under her wing or whatever. And that, and I spent countless hours with her. I remember my first step four. You know, I, um you know, we must have sat for hours in Denny's and McLeod Trail. You know, going over my step four because I didn't want to miss anything. I wanted to get everything. Anyways, um, so I, I went through the steps uh, with her and with the help of others, uh, and you know, I, I you know went through and I did my four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and that, and I still didn't really get it. You know, and then I found out later. You know, I have to turn everything over to God. I have to admit my powerlessness, right? And I'm not only powerless over alcohol, I'm powerless over, you know, food, drugs, people, places, and things. You know, and in the first step and the twelfth step, that's the only time they really mention alcohol and alcoholic, right? And that the rest, you know, is living. This is the living part. I thought I wasn't doing it right because I didn't come into AA, falling down drunk, or just hauled out a detox or whatever. So I didn't think I qualified to be there until I discovered, you know, in my fours and fives the exact nature of my wrongs and, and you know, that liquor, you know, or whatever other substance I choose to get into is just a symptom of a deeper problem. You know, and for me, that problem, like, was life. You know, as I've heard, you know, one guy say, you know, my reality check bounced. And mine certainly... <laughs> and, and sometimes it continues to bounce, believe me. Case in point was this morning. But anyways, so I... You know, I I, I had to admit my powerlessness. And then, you know, uh, came to believe that the power greater in ourselves can restore us to sanity. I had no problem there because I had prayed to God many times when I was drunk and wanted to get out of a situation, you know? Or when I was really hungover and, you know, worshipping, you know, the great white, you know what, that, you know, please God, get me out of this and I'll never do it again, right? And that, so I had no problem with that. But I didn't really get that, you know, he's not like a, you know, you know, tea bag praying only when in hot water, right? So mm-hmm. I I had it was in AA that I discovered, you know, uh, a power outside of myself. You know, and for a long time it was it was the people in the rooms, you know, God with skin on. I heard that early on in my sobriety. And it was like, you know, not not to put them on a pedestal because, you know, um, they can they have clay feet and they're they're not gonna, you know, be infallible. But it was enough to get me through till I could you know I don't think I even had a loving God until probably about five or six years ago I can remember you know my sponsor and her husband saying to me you can borrow ours because apparently yours is really kind of still punishing you and that, and so but that was okay whatever it takes right to get me through to where I got to go um, you know made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. you know sometimes I still don't understand that but you know, I just gotta trust the process that it's gonna work. And I gotta tell you, you know, uh, slogans, you know, those have saved my bacon more times than I care to count. Because they're slow, they're short, they're easy for me to remember. I, I, you know, I go into meetings and I hear people read from meditation books and then everybody around the table discusses the meditation that was read. I can't remember anything after, you know, okay, today's October the 18th and the reading for the day is, forget it. You know, I just can't, I can't do that. And I don't know if it was the years of alcoholism, it could be, or the drinking or whatever, killed a lot of brain cells. Um, but I remember taking a lot of vitamin D12 because somebody said, well that'll replace the brain cells. But anyways, um, I can't retrain much after, you know, they, they sort of cracked open the book. But I could remember the slogans, you know, and things, such simple things as, you know, first things first, you know, and what's in front of me that needs to be done, right? And it was ingrained in me from when I got my first sponsor, you know, to when all else fails, use that big book, you know. And I remember her telling me, you know, if you have to sit on that big book, then do it. And I can tell you guys, without lying, I have had to go to bed at some nights and have that sucker under my pillow because I just didn't think I was going to get through without it, you know. And, And so I did. And so I guess... For me, that's, you know, it's also, the program itself became a higher power, right? For years, it was people, right? It was my my former husband. It was, you know, my boss. It was whatever, you know, that was the higher power, you know. And today, you know, it's a God. And sometimes, like I say, am I misunderstanding? Whatever. Um, But I know that I'm here today, and I'm sober, and I'm relatively sane. Uh, so I know, I know that that part, I've, i got it. Believe it or not, I've got it. Um, you know, it's so okay, step three, you know, I turn everything, and that's everything. That's not just the select things that I want to turn over and hang on to some of the others. And I gotta tell you, you know, when it gets to my character defects, everything I've let go of has claw marks on it, right? Because I, I continue to hang on to it. You know? And that, uh, because for some reason I think that I can fix it or make it better. You know, and, and that's just not reality. Not for me or probably anybody else. Step four and five. You know, I had really no problem writing down my resentments because I had a lot of them. And that, and I had like pages and pages of people that I hated. If you looked at me the wrong way, your name went down on that list. You know, and that, but I was told to do it. You know, when I would start to doubt things, I was told to do it. And I can remember one fella, Um, I was at a roundup an AA roundup and I was going through some trials and tribulations and that and he said what step are you on? and I said well I'm writing on my step 4 I started it like in October of 89 and this is September of 1990 and I'm still writing on my step 4 right and that and he said it's called the AA squeeze play you know you're you're stuck in the middle you know you you don't want to go forward but you don't want to go back either so his suggestion was that you know I finished that four. Doesn't matter if it's perfect, doesn't matter if it's everything, because guess what, I could do another one down the road. So I did it. And my sponsor got on my case, you know, not in a gentle way, you know, like, how's that four coming, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then people that I had come into the program with started coming to meetings and saying they've done their fifth step. Well, then I got fifth step envy. You know, it's like, I want to be where they are, right? Right so I was told it's suggested not told I was, I heard whatever that if I book the appointment to do my fifth step I'm probably going to finish the fourth step well the morning of the fifth step I'm madly writing out my last few resentments right before I go into the room to give it away and I got to tell you I didn't I probably covered a lot of stuff and, and it was probably content and I probably didn't really understand the whole purpose of doing it I mean I I didn't do a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of my stuff I did it of everybody else's and what they'd done to me right so I but I did the best that's all I knew how to do you know and, and again you know waiting till the last minute to finish these things off okay I, that's what I did so anyway so I, I go into uh, to do this fifth step and I'm madly writing and I, I, I it, took, it, took, it took like four hours to do it but anyways and I thought you know uh, quantity is everything. <laughs> I discovered later on that's not necessarily so. Um because I thought the bigger the step four the better, right? So I went and I did my fifth step. The lady didn't die, throw me out, or anything like that. We went out after it was, it was, a, I finished and that. We burned my, my fourth step. I thought the pages were gonna, I thought they were gonna burn forever. But anyways, uh, burned the pages. Um, I'd already made my, my list, okay, my immense list, step eight, okay, when I did my step four list. And I had, Insta- I had like 230 names or, or issues on that. I had names, I had places, I had institutions. You name it, I had it because it said, you know, everything that goes down on your four, you got to put it down on your eight, right? Well, I've learned since then that that ain't necessarily so. Anyways, um, I did my fifth step and went out and we burned it, and then I went back in to this place and and uh, did my sixth and seventh step. And I really thought that by the time I left that place at 5 o'clock, you know, on a Friday afternoon, I was going to walk on water and I was never going to have any more cares in the world. You know, this is sort of like that feeling when I was undergoing the anesthetic, you know, when I had the surgery, you know, X number of years earlier. Life is going to be wonderful. Within the first 24 hours, I was just raging at my husband and I was angry about whatever and I thought, well, I can't be doing this right, you know. However, I persevered and, and I kept coming back and, and I did, you know, some of the names on my step eight list I was able to do, you know. Uh, and it says make a list and become willing. I remember one amends I had to make and I did this way. I did this in discretion, in sobriety. And what I had done is I had broken another person's anonymity. And it was in the workplace. And it was done out of a place of re- well, obviously resentment, right? And that, and my sponsor, God lover, you know, she said, you know, do you want sobriety on the lamb? Because I, I worked with this person, right? I didn't necessarily work on the same floor as them, but I did see them on a fairly regular basis. She said, do you want sobriety on the lamb? Or do you want recovery? So I thought about that, and I thought, okay. And then it says, you know, I became willing. And, you know, again, I learned through these rooms and these meetings. You know, if you're not willing, pray for willingness. I heard one gal say one a number of years ago, I was on a step study at her place, you know, I pray to be willing, to be willing, to be willing, to do whatever it takes for my recovery today. And that, so I had to pray for willingness to do this this particular event, you know, and, and it was sort of one of those things, you know, they have the, you know, um, ones you're going to do right away, ones with, whenever, and then the ones when hell freezes over. She was actually on the hell freezes one. <laughs> Amazing how quickly hell melts when <laughs> uh, you ask God, right? And uh, I actually ran into her in the elevator one day at work. And, and, I, and I, I can remember it again like it was yesterday. I, okay, God, if i meant to make this a man, put her in my path. Oh, God, he did. He also put somebody else on the elevator at the same time. I'm like, saved by the bell. Don't have to do it here. He got off at one floor, and she stayed on the elevator with me till we were going down to the main level. I had eight floors to do this or die. Anyways, by the time we got to the main level, I had told her, you know, I broke your sprite or your your and uh, anybody. Um, she thought it was my spouse that had done it. Cause she kind of had it in for him. But anyhow, um, I said it wasn't him. It was me. Uh, I was wrong. Um, will you forgive me? You know, uh, will you forgive me? Four simple words, right? And that and and I had to remember. You know, in step nine. You know, like they don't have to accept it, right? They just—they'll do whatever it is. And I've heard people, you know, have said, you know, when they've done their nines, they have everything from buzz off and not a nice way to "I accept your amend" to nothing, right? Doesn't matter what that person—if they say I accept or I don't. But thank you, God, my first real amend, and she accepted it, and it was like, oh my God, this isn't as hard as they thought it was going to be. And that was one of the biggest ones, because most of the other ones had been done when I was drinking, right? And that, so I kind of had an excuse for those. And I was also told that I don't necessarily put down the bar buddies, you know, that maybe I got into a squabble with, you know, X number of years before, because they probably weren't going to remember any of it anyways. So I... I became willing, and I made the amends, and I continued to make the amends. And again, I thought that was a one-shot deal. You know, I, I write my names, and I systematically actually wanted to go through and and tick them off as I went through, and and it didn't work that way. You know, um, I have the list at home someplace. I don't have not idea where it is, and that. And sometimes I, when I come across, that I look back on it, I think, oh yeah, I can remember do this. This is kind of cool. Um, so you know, and to accept when to do so would injure them or others. You know, maybe you know. And they direct them as such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others I love what one guy says at our meeting that's the caveat and I always go on so that I don't necessarily have to do it right you know it's sort of a legal loophole of not having to complete your step nine but that's BS okay at least it is for me but I am really clear when I am going to hurt somebody else if I go up to somebody and say you know I really resented you all these years because you did such and such to me and they don't know it I mean you know that's, that's gonna that's gonna hurt the other person I'm thinking right or if I go to somebody like my ex-husband and say geez you know all those years we were married you know I really didn't want to be with you and, and that but I, you know I'm sorry for that that's gonna hurt as well you know or if I go to try and fix something make the amend you know it's gonna show you know if I'm not sincere about it so I'm better off if I just wait and again you know God will present the time and opportunity to make the amend. So I, you know, step nine, step ten, continue to take personal inventory. Remember, Ron well, promptly admitted it. You know, I'd heard step, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, are the maintenance steps, right? And step ten was a way to not have, for me, have to do step four all the time. I didn't use it that way in the beginning, you know. I figured it's sort of like vacuuming your carpet, you know. Oh, you don't have to do it unless you see tracks in it, right? And then it's time to get a vacuum cleaner. And I did my step 10 the same way. I just, well, we just pile it up, and we'll do a step 4 once a year. Mm-hmm. It's easier to do it that way, right, than do a step 10 every day, you know. And uh, I've since learned that, that that's not necessarily a good way to go. Again, I didn't get this overnight. I wish I could say the first year I came in, it just was like that that's not what happened it's taken time a long time and sometimes it's sort of like i'm supposed to have this together i've been around these rooms a long time i should know i should know you know what i'm supposed to do and what i'm not supposed to do you know but that's just not the case for me it's it's definitely a learning experience and so i continue to come back so now today you know and sometimes you know i i Sometimes I don't even know what it is, so I have to write it out. You know, I do a lot of writing, you know, it's part of my recovery. You know, doing service, you know, writing. Um, I don't phone as many people as I as I probably could be doing that would help. Uh my recovery anyways. Um, but I mean that's a tool also that I can use, you know. Or just reading, you know, cracking open the big book. You know, I, I got a, a thing, an email sent to me uh a couple of weeks ago that um a person that has a big book that's falling apart usually isn't, you know, uh, themselves, eh? And I thought, eh, you know, so my, my big book is sort of well-worn here. So, I mean, I do I do use it and, and that. And I do use the, the, the literature that's that's been, you know, provided uh, to me through my years uh, in recovery. Uh, step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. The first time I heard fought through prayer and medication, I thought, that's me, <laughs> uh, because I just didn't get it. I thought it was all about Gregorian chants and mm, you know, and burning candles and incense. And if I didn't spend at least an hour like some, you know, Tibetan monk, you know, I wasn't doing it right, eh? Until I, again, I came through these rooms and I heard, you know, God bless this man that goes to one of our meetings, you know? Ask for help in the morning and give thanks at night, you know, and remember throughout the day who's carrying you. And that, and sometimes that's as simple as it can get. I want to complicate it and I want to put in mantras and stuff like that. And again, it goes back to things that have been ingrained in me, but I can also retain and call on. Which, interestingly enough, is not necessarily every single meditation for every single day of the year, but I do remember things like the third step prayer or the big book the seventh step prayer slowly getting around to doing the the 11th step prayer of St. Francis of Assisi but haven't quite got there yet you know serenity prayer you know when all else fails is just please God help you know I don't have to get it really complicated and you know all sorts of fancy schmancy things and I needed to hear that again you know because I thought I wasn't doing it right you know I thought I had to go off and become a nun you know or or, or you know like Again, turning my will in my life, you know, well, if they want me to be a nun in India, I guess that's where I'm going to go. And that, uh, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't say that. Imagine my surprise when <laughs> I had a, a, a former nun come to me and want me to sponsor her. It's like, <laughs> you know, God's little jest, eh? You know, I, mean, I can't believe it. God bless her. She, she actually died six years ago today, um, now that I think about it. And that, and imagine my surprise when she came to me and said, "Would you sponsor me?" He's like, yeah, you know, they're kidding me. Anyway, so so step eleven to me does not have to be, you know, smoke and mirrors and everything. You know, it can simply be just going to a meeting, just asking for some quiet, just slowing myself down. You know, taking a few deep breaths and saying, "Okay, God, it. it's your deal, not mine." And I've had to do that a lot. And that, but guess what? You know, whatever was going on before that particular moment. It just didn't seem to be so bad after I had done that. So I've learned along the ways and and through the years. Um, Mm -hmm. Step 12, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Um, I... I certainly went through the steps, and I love what one speaker said uh, a number of years ago. He said, you know, he said, I absolutely hate it when I go to a meeting and say, oh, having had a, a spiritual waking as a result of these steps. He said, it's not our result. It's the result. And I've hung on to that ever since. You know, because that's, it's very crucial, you know. There's And I was told this again a long time ago. There's 12 steps, and they're in an order for a reason. You know, and uh, and of course, there's probably people in here that I'll do I'll do fine on one and twelve, right? And uh, and it just doesn't work. I did try that, you know, uh, or the or the or, or the 2, A 1, walls one two three one two three, you know. And again, that doesn't work. You gotta you gotta do them all, you know. Um, I love it. Yeah, one of the elevators is out of is a commission. I remember a, a convention I was part of uh about uh twelve years ago and, and that and it's you know the elevator you know to serenity is, is uh is out of order, you must use the steps, you know. So, so that's what I continue to do. At least I'm trying to anyway. So and you know, having a spiritually as the result of these steps, okay? And that and and that's okay, I can I can I can deal with that, right? It's the second part of Step 12, you know, and to practice these principles and all our things. I don't have any problem really reaching out to another alcoholic, and and I've done service. Um, That's another part of my journey. Um, I had to get into service uh, simply due to the fact that they told me that, you know, when you're in self, the best way to get out is do something for somebody else. So I, I got into service in my first AA home group. I was their secretary. I became literature person. Um, you know, I've, I've done a number of things through the years, um, you know, as, as part of my service work. One of the things I really love to do is with uh, Detox Center in Calgary. we well, probably going to call them now, but one in particular, you know, um, I love going and speaking, you know, to the people there because I, I don't, sometimes it's really easy for me to forget that I could be where they are. You know, like I'm on this side of the table, you know, as somebody speaking to them and they're the clients on the other side. You know, and, and the first time I did that I can remember, you know, you got the hecklers in the back row away, you know, and they're making wow. faces to each other and whatever and that. But it doesn't matter, you know, if I reach one person in that room, you know, and, and the biggest thing I need to remember is, you know, I stayed sober. You know, I love it when people say, Oh geez, you know, I went on a twelve-step call and you know, went up, got drunk again, or whatever." But didn't you stay sober? You know, and I haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of twelve-step work um, per se, like taking taking people to meetings. But I was, I I have gone on a couple of twelve-step calls, and and it was told to me that you know it'll do you more good than probably them, and it did. You know, because if, when all else fails, you know, I, it makes me really grateful. You know, when I first came into these rooms, oh, I remember this old-timer, you know, God bless them, used to say, my name is Ray, and I'm a grateful alcoholic, and I just wanted to smack him. You know, it's like, you just don't get this, do you? You know, and, and so, again, you know, it took me a lot of meetings, a lot of step studies, a lot of fourth and fifth steps, you know, to, to do what I have to do, to get to the point where today I'm grateful, you know. Um, I was at a meeting last night, you know. It, it used to be, you know, the glass is half empty, you know. Um, or, you know, there's a lot of horse manure around here. Look at look at this. We're up to it in our, our knees, right? Never to, to look at there must be a pony here someplace, you know. So that has turned. That has changed for me, you know. Um, you know, I've got things down here that I think I've touched on acceptance um, I was speaking to Karen just shortly before I got up here you know and we're talking about dr. Paul you know when he wrote acceptance in that and and a number of years later when he was speaking you know he wanted to clarify that you know a lot of people assume or read that as you know acceptance is all their answer you know is their answer for, for the whatever problem there is and that they had to like it. You know, go through with a big <coughs> smile pasted on the face, and that's 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 not what was meant. You know, I have to accept it. Doesn't mean I gotta like it, right? Because the more I fight against it, you know, the worse it becomes, and and it's just it's it's just never gonna be. It's it's just not gonna work, right? So I need to accept where I am and let it go. Um, yeah, <laughs> I. Um, I'm in another twelve-step program. Along the way, I, I discovered that, that food was another drug that I, I used, um, and I went into uh, that program uh, again. I was going to go in there, get a few meetings under my belt, and leave, never go back. And imagine my amazement that after 17 years, I'm still there. Go figure. Um, you know, and, and I spoke about my mother when um, when I first started, and and my hatred for her. Um, she was one of the reasons why I decided not to have children, uh, because I thought, I just don't want to be the screaming lunatic that she was, right? And that, and she's a nursing home in Calgary. And part of my dilemma when I got here today is, um, I want to go and see her next week. She probably doesn't know who I am from the nursing attendant that's going to come in and, you know, clean her up for supper tonight. You know, she probably doesn't. But I know. And that's the difference today. And it's as a result of this program. It's not anything I've done. It's everything that you guys have done and what you've showed me how to do and continue to show me how to do. Um, you know, I hear people in you know say, well, I haven't been to a meeting in three months or I haven't been to a meeting in ten years or whatever. God bless them. More higher power to them if they can do that. I'd be out barking at cars. <laughs> I need to get to meetings. You know? Because I'm really a sick puppy. Even after a Few full moons. I still don't have it together, you know. And I was in a state coming in, coming into uh, Saskatoon today. And my lovely husband here, my my new husband here, my better husband, uh, <laughs> uh, was uh, you know was sort of talking about. You know, I was asking him to, to to find out where on the map exactly where Cardinal Crescent was, <laughs> and he says geez, I could hardly of these glasses. And I thought, well, you know, that's not my problem, okay? <laughs> you know, like, do something about it. I need to know where this, you know. So anyways, God actually put a red light right then, and I was able to look at the map myself. I mean, I have no idea where it was, but I, I needed to know exactly, right? So anyway, and then he gets on the elevator, and he's, what are all these bumps for on the, on the buttons? Okay, they're the braille ones, right? It's like, <laughs> And I, I read my apologies sweet. <laughs> it was like they're for the braille people. They're people can't see, you know. i was sort of like, don't you know that? And I, I stop. And it's like, you know, something, you know, lack of planning on my part does not constitute an emergency on his part. So, and I, so I need to remember this stuff, you know. And I mean, there's, I could probably go on for hours. Richard gave me the high five a few seconds ago, about two minutes ago, three minutes ago, whatever. So all I can say is, you know, this program, it works. Um, And I I sometimes, you know, when when people come in, they say, well, how does this program work? I want to tell them in 25 words or less. But, you know, the reality is I can't. I've got to put in the time. You know, I've got to put in the time. I've got to do the work. It's that simple, you know. Um, If I want the life that I have today, that's what I have to do. And today, my life is quintessential better than it ever was, ever, even despite the fact things don't always go my way, and that, as they did this morning, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, That's just what it is, you know, I do the footwork and then let let it go, you know, give it over to God and that, because me hanging on to it's not going to change what's happened, you know, and when I can do that and step back, then the answers come, right? So that's what I need to do today. So, you know, um, I thank you for, uh, Richard, thank you for, when he phoned me, it seemed like a good idea at the time to say yes, and that, and I said, oh yeah, I'm really pumped and everything, you know, and that, and my sponsor this morning, you know, God bless her, you know, she said, you'll do fine, you know, you'll you'll just be fine, and that, and and so, uh, you know, to those of you out there who may be struggling, or maybe you've been around a little while, or maybe not long, you know, if you're... If you're newer, if you're been around for a while, you know, just hang in there, you know. Uh it gets better, it sometimes gets worse, but you know, just hang in for the good stuff. You know, I was told not to leave five minutes before the miracle happens. You know, and I've got a lot of miracles in my life today that that I wouldn't have had before this program. Um, you know, I've got a man that I love dearly. You know, sometimes I wonder, but anyways, um, I love him dearly, and that, and I would never have had that without this program. So, and that's not meaning that you come in here and you get yourself a husband. But what I'm saying is, you know, there are gifts in this program. You just, you just have to, you just have to hang in there and work for them and, and they'll come. Thanks.